27, add to that functionary's office, an amiable, quiet man he was, and listened to our complaint with perfect composure. After hearing it he summoned this motriel with his book of records, and an animated discussion followed. I expected to see somebody grow indignant, but the whole affair abounded in good nature. The conversation was conducted with the decorum of a school dialogue on exhibition day. In half an hour by the clock I was told I could have a troika at once, in consideration of my special passport. Wait a little, whispered my friend in French, and we will have the other troika for Schmidt. So I waited, kicking my heels about the room, studying the posters on the walls, eyeing a bad portrait of the emperor, and a word is one of the empress, and now and then drawing near the scene of action. The clerks looked at me in furtive glances, at every pronunciation of my name. Coupled with the word Americansky, there was a general stare all around. I am confident those attaches of the post office at Krasnoyarsk had a perfect knowledge of my features. In exactly another half hour our point and the horses were gained. When we entered the office it was positively declared there were no horses to be had, and it was a little odd that two troikas and six horses could be produced out of nothing, and each of them at the end of a long talk. I asked an explanation of the mystery but was told it was a Russian peculiarity that no American could understand. The horses came very promptly, one trike to Schmidt's lodgings and the other to mine. The servants packed my baggage into the little Tilyada that was to carry me to the first station, joining Schmidt with the other team. We rattled out of town on an excellent road, and left the red hills of Krasnoyarsk. The last object I saw denoting the location of the town was a church or chapel on a high cliff overlooking the Yenisei Valley. The road lay over an undulating region, where there were a few streams and very little timber. The snow lay in little patches here and there on the swells least exposed to the Sunday but it did not cover a twentieth part of the ground. In several hollows the mud had frozen and presented a rough surface to our wheels. Our Tilyada had no springs, and when we went at a rapid trot over the worst places the bones of my spinal column seemed engaged in a struggle for independence. A thousand miles of such riding would have been too much for me. A dog belonging to Madame Radstvani's housekeeper followed me from Krasnoyarsk, but did not show himself till we were six or eight versts away. Etiquette, to say nothing of morality, does not sanction stealing the dog of your host, and so I arranged for the brute's return. In consideration of fifty kopecks the Yemshik agreed to take the dog on his homeward trip and deliver him in good order and condition at Krasnoyarsk. Just before reaching the first station we passed through a village nearly four miles long, but only a single street in width. The station was at the extreme end of the village, our sleighs were waiting for us, and so were the men who brought them from Krasnoyarsk. There was no snow for the next twenty versts, and consequently the sleighs needed further transportation. Schmidt's sleigh was dragged empty over the bare ground, but mine, being heavier, was mounted upon wheels. Other difficulties awaited us. There was but one troika to spare and only one Tilyada. We required two vehicles for ourselves and baggage, but the Smotrial could not accommodate us. We ordered the samovar, and debated over our tea. I urged my friend to try the effect of my special passport, which had always been successful in Paul's hands. He did so after our tea drinking, but the document was powerless. This Montreal doubtless arguing that if the paper were of consequence we should have shown it on our arrival. We sent it to the starost, or head man of the village, but that word or the declined to honor it, and we were left to shift for ourselves. 
Evidently the power of the Governor-General's passport was on the wane. The document was a request, not an order, and therefore had no real force. Paul always displayed it as if it were an imperial ukase. His manner of spreading the double page and exhibiting seal and signature carried authority and produced horses. The amiable naturalist had none of the quality called cheek, and the adoption of an authoritative air did not accord with his character. He subsequently presented the passport as if he thought it all powerful, and on such occasions it generally proved so. A man who wishes to pass a doorkeeper at a caucus, enter a lady's car on a railway, or obtain a reserved seat in a courtroom, is much more certain of success if he advances with a confident air than if he hesitates and appears fearful of ejection. Humanity is the same the world over, and there is more than a shadow of truth in the saying that society values a man pretty much as he appears to value himself. I can testify that the Smotrials in Siberia generally regarded our papers according to our manner of showing them. We took tea a second time, parleyed with the Yenshiks and their friends, and closed by chartering a team at double the regular rates. Just before reaching the snow we passed the sleighs, and halted for them to come up. My sleigh was very soon ready, and we rejoiced at our transfer of baggage. During the change a bottle of cognac disappeared mysteriously, and I presume we shall never see it again. The other and more cumbersome articles preserve their numbers faithfully. Our party halting in the moonlight and busy about the vehicles, presented a curiously picturesque appearance. Schmidt was in his arctic costume, while I wore my winter dress, minus the dihar. The Yenshiks were wrapped in their inevitable sheepskins and bustled about with unwavering good humor. In the sleigh we were at home, and had a roof to cover us, we made very good speed to the station, where we found no horses. The floor of the traveler's room was covered with dormant figures, and after bumping my head over the doorway, I waited in a pond of bodies, heads, and legs. The moon was the only light, and its beams were not sufficient to prevent my stepping on several sleepers, and extracting Russian oaths for my carelessness. Now for it, I whispered to the good-natured doctor, as we waked the smotrial, make him think our papers are important. The official rubbed his eyes over the passport, and then hastened to arouse the starost. The latter ordered horses from the village without delay. It had been a fake day in honor of the emperor, and most of the villagers were drunk, so that it required some time to assemble the requisite yenshiks and horses. A group of men and women from an evening party passed the station and amused us with native songs, an inebriated music, riding on a small sled, turned from the road to enter the station yard, one side of the sled passed over a log, and as the man had not secured his balance, he rolled out of sight in a snowdrift, I watched him as he emerged, much as Neptune might appear from the crest of a foamy wave, the Siberians keep all the imperial fate days with scrupulous exactness, and their loyalty to the emperor is much akin to religious awe. The whole imperial family is the object of great respect, and whatever is commanded in the name of the emperor meets the most cheerful acquiescence. One finds the portrait of Alexander in almost every house, and I never heard the name of that excellent ruler mentioned disrespectfully. If his majesty would request that his subjects abstain from vodka drinking on imperial fate days, he would do much toward their prosperity. It would be an easy beginning in the cause of temperance as no one could consider it out of place for the emperor to prescribe the manner of celebrating his own festivals. The work once begun in this way, would be likely to lead to good results. Drunkenness is the great vice of the Russian peasant, and will never be suppressed without the active endeavors of the government. 
When we started from the station we ran against the gatepost, and were nearly overturned in consequence. My head came against the side of the sleigh with a heavy thump that affected me more than it did the vehicle. We descended a long hill at a full run, and as our Yenshik was far from sober I had a lively expectation of a general smash at the bottom. About halfway down the descent we met a sleigh and dashed our fenders against it. The strong poles rubbed across each other like fencing foils, and withstood the shock finely. At sunset there were indications of a snowstorm. In the gradual ascent of the thermometer, an hour past midnight the temperature was above freezing point, and the sleigh runners lost that peculiar ringing sound that indicates cold weather. I threw off my furs and endeavored to sleep, but accomplished little in that direction. My clothing was too thick or too thin. Without my furs I shivered, and with them I perspired. My sleigh robe was too much for comfort, and the absence of it left something to be desired. Warm weather is a great inconvenience in a Siberian winter journey. The best temperature for travel is from 5 to 15 degrees below the freezing point. The road was abominable, though it might have been worse. It was full of drifts, bare spots, and outcobas and our motion was as varied as a politician's career. Sometimes it was up, then down, then sidewise, and then always at once. We pitched and rolled like a canoe descending the Lachine Rapids, or a whale boat towed by a hundred barrel, bowed head. In many places the snow was blown from the regular road, and the winter track wound through fields and forests wherever snow could be found. There was an abundance of rocks, stumps, and other inequalities to relieve the monotony of this mode of travel. We went much out of our way to find snow, and I think we sometimes increased, by a third or a half, the distance between stations. The road was both horizontally and vertically tortuous. My companion took every occurrence with the utmost coolness, and taught me some things in patience I had not known before. He was long accustomed to Siberian travel, having made several scientific journeys through northern Asia. In 1859 the Russian Geographical Society sent him to visit the Amur Valley and explore the island of Sakhalin. His journey thither was accomplished in winter, and when he returned he brought many valuable data touching the geology and the vegetable and animal life of the island. He told me he spoke the American language, having learned it among my countrymen at Nikolaevsk, but had never studied English. His journey to the Arctic Circle was made on behalf of the Russian Academy of Science of which he was an active member. In 1865 the captain of a Unisei steamer learned that some natives had discovered the perfectly preserved remains of a mammoth in latitude 67 degrees about a hundred versts west of the river. He announced the fact to a savant, who sent the intelligence to St. Petersburg. Scientific men deemed the discovery so important that they immediately commissioned Dr. Schmidt to follow it up. The doctor went to eastern Siberia in February and in the following month proceeded down the Yenisei to Turushk, where he remained four or five weeks waiting for the season of warmth and light. He was accompanied by Mr. Lopatin, a Russian geologist, and a staff of three or four assistants. They carried a photographic apparatus, and one of the sensations of their voyage was to take photographs at midnight in the light of a blazing sun. When the Yenisei was free of ice the explorers, in a barge, Descended from Durushk to the landing place nearest the mammoth deposit, several Cossacks accompanied the party from Durushk, and assisted in its intercourse with the natives. The latter were peacefully inclined, and gladly served the men who came so recently from the Emperor's dwelling place. They brought their reindeer and sledges, and guided the explorers to the object of their search. 
The country in the Arctic Circle has very little vegetation, and the driftwood that descends the Yenisei is an important item to the few natives along the river. The trees growing north of latitude 66 degrees are very small, and as one nears the coast of the frozen ocean they disappear altogether. The principal features of the country are the wide tundras, or moss-covered plains, similar to those of northeastern Siberia. The scattered aboriginals are Tungus and Samoyeds. Their chief employment is the chase in winter, fishing in summer, and the care of their reindeer at all seasons. Reindeer form their principal wealth, and are emphatically the circulating medium of the country. Dr. Schmidt told me he rode in a reindeer sledge from the river to within a short distance of the mammoth. It was the month of June, but the snow had not disappeared and nothing could be accomplished. A second visit several weeks later was more successful. In the interval the party embarked on the steamer which makes one or two journeys every summer to the Arctic Ocean in search of fish, furs, and ivory. A vigorous traffic is maintained during the short period that the river remains open. On the return from the Arctic Ocean, the season was more favorable to mammoth hunting. Unfortunately the remains were not perfect. The skeleton was a good deal broken and scattered, and some parts were altogether lacking. The chief object of the enterprise was to obtain the stomach of the mammoth so that its contents could be analyzed. It is known that the beast lived upon vegetable food, but no one has yet ascertained its exact character. Some contend that the mammoth was a native of the tropics, and his presence in the north is due to the action of an earthquake. Others think he dwelt in the Arctic regions, and never belonged in the tropics. If we had found his stomach, said the doctor, and ascertained what kind of trees were in it, this question would have been decided. We could determine his residence from the character of his food. Though making diligent search the doctor found no trace of the stomach, and the great point is still open to dispute. He brought away the underjaw of the beast, and a quantity of skin and hair. The skin was half an inch thick, and as dry and hard as a piece of sole leather. The hair was like fine long bristles and of a reddish-brown color. From the quantity obtained it is thought the animal was pretty well protected against ordinary weather. The doctor gave me a cigar tube which a Samoa fabricated from a small bone of the mammoth. He estimated that the beast had been frozen about 10,000 years in the bank where he found him, and that his natural dwelling place was in the north. The country was evidently much warmer when the mammoth roamed over it than now, and there is a belief that some convulsion of the earth followed by a lowering of the temperature, sealed the remains of the huge beasts in the spots where they are now discovered. In the year 1799 a bank of frozen earth near the mouth of the Lena, in latitude 77 degrees broke away and revealed the body of a mammoth. Hair, skin, flesh and all, had been completely preserved by the frost. In 1806 a scientific commission visited the spot, but the lapse of seven years proved of serious consequence. There had been a famine in the surrounding region, and the natives did not scruple to feed their dogs from the store of flesh which nature had preserved. Not supposing the emperor desired the bones of the beast they carried away such as they fancied, the teeth of the bears, wolves, and foxes were worse than the tooth of time, and finished all edible substance the natives did not take. Only the skeleton remained, and of this several bones were gone. All that could be found was taken and is now in the imperial collection at St. Petersburg. The remains of the mammoth show that the beast was closely akin to the elephant, but had a longer and more compressed skull, and wore his tusks in a different manner. Tusks have been found more than nine feet long, and I am told that one discovered some years ago, exceeds ten feet in length, 
The skull from the Lena Mammoth weighed 400 and some odd pounds. Others have been found much larger. The mammoth was evidently an animal that commanded the respect of the elephant, and other small fried quadrupeds. Bones of the rhinoceros and hippopotamus abound in northern Siberia, and like those of the mammoth were found in the frozen earth. In the last century the body of a rhinoceros of an extinct species was found on the river Vilui, a tributary of the Lena. In the museum at St. Petersburg there is a head of the arctic rhinoceros on which the skin and tendons remain, and a foot of the same animal displays a portion of its hair. The claws of an enormous bird are also found in the north, some of them three feet long, and jointed through their whole length like the claws of an ostrich. Captain Wrangell and other explorers say the mammoth bones are smaller on the Arctic islands than on the mainland, but are wonderfully increased in quantity. For many years the natives and fur traders have brought away large cargoes, but the supply is not yet exhausted. The teeth and tusks on the islands are more fresh and white than those of the continent. On the Lakoff Islands the principal deposit was on a low sand bank, and the natives declared that when the waves receded after an easterly wind, a fresh supply was always found. One island about latitude 80 degrees was said to be largely composed of mammoth bones. I presume this statement should be received with a little caution. During the doctor's expedition the supply of provisions was not always abundant, but there was no absolute scarcity. The party lived for some time on fish, and on the flesh of the reindeer. A story was told that the explorers were to reduced to subsisting on the mammoth they discovered and hence their failure to bring away portions of the flesh. Mammoth cutlets and soup were occasionally proposed for the entertainment of the savants on their return to Irkutsk. One of my acquaintances had a narrow escape from death on the ice during an expedition toward Kolnoi Island, and the chain lying to the east of it, generally known as New Siberia. It was early in the spring somewhat later than the time of the ordinary winter journeys that he set out from the mouth of the Lena, hoping to reach Kolnoi Island and returned before the weather became warm. He had four dog teams, and was accompanied by a Russian servant and two Yakut natives, whom he engaged for a voyage down the Lena, and the expedition across the ice. It was known that a quantity of ivory had been gathered on the island, and was waiting for transportation to the Lena, to get this ivory was the object of the journey. I will tell the story in the words of the narrator, or as nearly as I can do so from recollection. We reached the island without serious trouble, the weather was clear and cold, and the traveling quite as good as we expected. Where the ice was level we got along very well, though there were now and then deep fissures caused by the frost, and which we had some difficulty in crossing. Frequently we were obliged to detach the dogs from the sleds and compel them to jump singly across the fissures. The sledges were then drawn over by hand, and once on the other side the teams were re-harnessed and proceeded on their way. The ice was seven or eight feet thick, and some of the fissures were a yard wide at the surface, and tapered to a wedge shape at the bottom. It was not absolutely dangerous, though very inconvenient to fall into one of the crevices, and our dogs were very careful to secure a good foothold on the edges where they jumped. The second day out we got among a great many hummocks, or detached pieces of bergs, that caused us much trouble. They were so numerous that we were often shut out from the horizon, and were guided solely by the compass. Frequently we found them so thick that it was impossible to break a road through them, and after working for an hour or two, we would be compelled to retrace our steps, and endeavor to find a new route, where they formed in ridges, and were not too high. 
we broke them down with our ice hatchets, the work was very exhausting to us, and so was the task of drawing the sledges to the poor dogs, just as we left the level ice, and came among these hummocks, the dogs came on the fresh track of a polar bear, and at once started to follow him, my team was ahead, and the dogs set out in full chase, too rapidly for me to stop them, though I made every effort to do so, the other teams followed close upon us, and very soon my sledge overturned, and the dogs became greatly mixed up, the team of Nikolai, my servant, was likewise upset close to mine, and we had much trouble to get them right again, Ivan and Paul, the two Yakuts, came up and assisted us, their dogs following on our track had not caught the scent of the bear so readily as ours, and consequently were more easily brought to a stop, we set the sledges right, and when we were ready to start, the sharp eyes of Ivan discovered the bear looking at us from behind a hummock, and evidently debating in his mind whether to attack us or not, leaving the teams in charge of Paul, I started with Nikolai and Ivan to endeavor to kill the bear, Nikolai and myself were armed with rifles, while Ivan carried a knife and an ice hatchet, the bear stood very patiently as we approached, he was evidently unaccustomed to human visitors, and did not understand what we were about, the hummock where he stood was not very steep, and I thought it best to get a position a little above him for better safety, in case we had a sharp fight after firing our first shot, we took our stand on a little projection of ice a few feet higher than where he was, and about 30 paces distant, I arranged that Nikolai should fire first, as I was a better shot than he, and it would be best for me to have the reserve, Nikolai fired, aiming at the bear's heart, which was well protected, as we knew, by a thick hide and a heavy mass of flesh, the shot was not fatal, the bear gave a roar of pain, and sprang toward us, I waited until he placed his huge forepaws over the edge of the little ridge where we stood, and exposed his throat and chest, he was not more than ten feet away, and I buried the bullet exactly where I wished, but, notwithstanding both our shots, the animal was not killed, but lifted himself easily above the shelf, and sprang toward us, we retreated higher up to another shelf, and as the bear attempted to climb it, Nikolai struck him with the butt of his rifle, which the beast warded off with his paw, and sent whirling into the snow, but at the same instant Ivan took his opportunity to deal an effective blow with his ice hatchet, which he buried in the skull of the animal, fairly penetrating his brain, the blow accomplished what our shots had not, Bruin fell back, and after a few convulsive struggles, lay dead at our feet, we hastened back to the teams, and brought them forward, we were not absent more than twenty minutes, but by the time we returned several arctic foxes had made their appearance, and were snuffing the air, preparatory to a feast, we drove them off, and very soon, the dogs were enjoying a meal of fresh meat, that we threw to them immediately on removing the skin of the bear, which the Yakuts accomplished with great alacrity, the beast was old and tough, so that most of his flesh went to the dogs, part of it being eaten on the spot, while the rest was packed on the sledges for future use, we had no other incidents of importance until our return from the island, the weather suddenly became cloudy, and a warm wind set in from the southward, the snow softened so that the dogs could with difficulty draw the sledges, even when relieved of our weight, we walked by their side, encouraging them in every possible way, and as the softness of the snow increased, it became necessary to throw away a part of the loads, our safety required that we should reach the land as soon as possible, since there were many indications that the ice was about to break up, 
After 16 hours of continuous dragging, we stopped, quite exhausted, though still 30 miles from land, as it was absolutely impossible for men or dogs to proceed further without rest. I was so utterly worn out that I sank upon the snow, hardly able to move. The Yakuts federal the dogs, and then lay down at their side, anxiously waiting the morning to bring us relief. Just as the day was opening, I was awakened by a rumbling noise, and a motion below me, followed by a shout from Ivan. The ice is breaking up. I sprang to my feet, and so did my companions. The dogs were no less sensible of their danger than ourselves, and stirred uneasily while giving vent to plaintive whines. The wine from the south had increased, it was blowing directly off the land, and I could see that the ice was cracking here and there under its influence, and the whole field was in motion. Dark lanes appeared, and continued to increase in width, besides growing every minute more numerous. I ordered all the loads thrown from the sledges, with the exception of a day's provisions for men and dogs, and a few of our extra garments. When this was done and it was done very speedily we started for the shore. We jumped the dogs over the smaller crevices without serious accident, but the larger ones gave us a great deal of trouble. On reaching them, we skirted along their edges till we could find a cake of ice large enough to ferry us over. In this way we crossed more than twenty openings, some of them a hundred yards in width. Do not suppose we did so without being thrown several times in the water, and on one occasion four of the dogs were drowned. The poor brutes became tangled in their harness and it was impossible to extricate them. All the dogs seemed to be fully aware of their danger, and to understand that their greatest safety lay in their obeying us. I never saw them more obedient, and they rarely hesitated to do what we commanded. It grieved me greatly to see the dogs drowning when we were unable to help them, but could only listen to their cries for help, until stifled by the water. We toiled all day, and night found us five miles from shore with a strip of open water between us and land, here and there were floating cakes of ice, but the main body had been blown off by the wind and promised to be a mile or two further to the north before morning, I determined to wait for daylight, and then endeavor to reach the shore on cakes of ice, the attempt would be full of danger, but there was nothing else to be done, reluctantly I proposed abandoning the dogs, but my companions appealed to me to keep them with us, as they had already saved our lives, and it would be the basest ingratitude to desert them. I did not require a second appeal, and promised that whatever we did, the dogs should go with us if possible. Imagine the horror of that night. We divided the little food that remained, men and dogs sharing alike, and tried to rest upon the ice. We had no means of making a fire. Our clothing was soaked with water, and, during the night, the wine shifted suddenly to the northward and became cold. I was lying down and fell asleep from utter exhaustion, though the cold was severe, I did not think it dangerous, and felt quite unable to exercise to keep warm, the Yakuts, with Nikolai, huddled among the dogs, and were less wearied than I when they shouted to me at daybreak, I slowly opened my eyes, and found that I could not move, I was frozen fast to the ice, had I been alone there would have been no escape, my companions came to my relief, but it was with much difficulty that they freed me from my unpleasant situation. When we looked about, we found that our circumstances had greatly changed during the night. The wind had ceased, and the frost had formed fresh ice over the space where there was open water the day before. It was out of the question to ferry to land, and our only hope lay in driving the sledges over the new ice. 
I ordered the teams to be made ready, and to keep several hundred yards apart, so as to make as little weight as possible on one spot. I took one sledge, Nikolai another, and the Yakutsky third. Our fourth sledge was lost at the time of our accident the day before. Our plan was to drive at full speed, to lessen the danger of breaking through. Once through the ice, there would have been no hope for us. We urged the dogs forward with loud cries, and they responded to our wishes by exerting all their strength. We went forward at a gallop. I reached the shore in safety, and so did Nikolai. But not so the poor Yakuts. When within a mile of the land I heard a cry. I well knew what it meant, but I could give no assistance, as a moment's pause would have seen me breaking through our frail support. I did not even dare to look around, but continued shouting to the dogs to carry them to land. Once there, I wiped the perspiration from my face, and ventured to look over the track where I came. The weight of the two men upon one sledge had crushed the ice, and men, dogs and sledge had fallen into the water, unable to serve them in the least. We watched till their struggles were ended, and then turned sorrowfully away. The ice closed over them, and the bed of the Arctic Ocean became their grave. Chapter XLII In the morning after our departure from Krasnoyarsk we reached a third station, and experienced no delay in changing horses. The road greatly improved, but we made slow progress. When we were about two versts from the station one of our horses left the sleigh and bolted homeward. The Yamshik went in pursuit but did not overtake the runaway till he reached the station. During his absence we sat patiently, or rather impatiently, in our furs, and I improved the opportunity to go to sleep. When we were properly reconstructed we moved forward, with my equipage in the rear. The mammoth sleigh went at a disreputably low speed. I endeavored to persuade our Yenshik to take the lead, but he refused, on the ground that the smotrial would not permit it. Added to this, he stopped frequently to make pretended arrangements of the harness, where he imagined it out of order. To finish my irritation at his maneuvers, he proposed to change with a Yanshik he met about halfway on his route. This would bring each to his own station at the end of the drive, and save a return trip. The man had been so dilatory and obstinate that I concluded to take my opportunity, and stubbornly refused permission for the change. This so enraged him that he drove very creditably for the rest of the way both of them Jews, he said to the attendants at the station when we arrived, his theory as to our character was something like this, of the male travelers in Siberia there are practically but two classes officers and merchants, we could not be officers, as we wore no uniform, therefore we were merchants, the trading class in Siberia comprises Russians of pure blood and jade, 